Hello and welcome to a new series of Shirim, of discussions called From Redemption to Consolation between Pesach and Tishabab, starting with the idea that we go out of Egypt on Pesach and then we experience the downs of Tishabab, but embedded in Tishabab, I think, are the seeds of how we can find our way to redemption. So over the next weeks, I'm going to pick up halachic issues that come up in this time of year, trying to find our way to where we can see the path to redemption in the hopes that we succeed at finding our way this year for next year to not have to experience Tisha B'Av again, but rather to experience the Gulash Lema, the complete redemption. My name is Gidon Rothstein. I'll be presenting these 14 discussions for you, and hopefully we're having a good time together learning about the progression from the heights of the exodus from Egypt of the Yisiam all the way to the depths of Chorban Bayit of the destruction, and where we can find the seeds both of what we lost and how we lost it, as well as the seeds of how we can get it back and we can get to the full redemption that we long for. So those are the steps we're taking. And the seeds of this idea, the roots of this idea, started with back many years ago when I first encountered the Haggadah that they put out called Haggadah uh, the base Brisk or the base Alevi, the Haggadah of the family of the Salavechiks. They focused many times on uh, the Pusik that says, his biyani mibarim hirvani la'ana. Pusik says that Hashem made me eat bitter foods, but the Midrash pointed out that the day of the week, of the first day of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of the first day of Pesach every year, is the same day of the week as Tisha B'Av of that year. And so the briskers would link the Pesach to, to uh, Tisha B'Av, and this podcast will be going from soon after Pesach, soon after Rosh Chodesh Iyar, when we start, when Ashkenazim start having their full practices of the Omer period, and going till after Tisha B'Av. So that's a good model for us. So the question is, what are the steps to get us from one place to the other? Is it a direct line? Can we see the seeds of it in the beginning of what happened? Or is it like we went out of Egypt, we were up at the top and everything was great and everything was wonderful. And you can't imagine how we got to being so down. And then we had to go down. So I'm going to try to show, I'm going to hope to see that there's more, uh, it's more connected. There's more continuity than we might think. So that's our plan for these next few weeks. And I hope that we end up having a better insight into the history of the Jewish people, not as a historical uh, exercise, but as a Musar Haskel, as a way for us to learn about ourselves and to see how, sadly, we repeat the errors of our forefathers over and over again. We as a people, I don't mean we as individuals, we may do that too, but we as a people repeat certain errors and we lose sight of the keys and the tools to get us to what we long for, which is a redemption. So, for this week, I'm going to start. We're going to be making our way to Tisha B'Av and beyond. Let's start with Yat Mitzrayim, with Pesach. Now, Yat Mitzrayim, the Exodus, is something that people talk about often. So I actually don't want to talk about that. I want to talk first about the Omer. I want to talk halachically rather than story-wise. So in halacha, we have this thing called the Omer. We have this on the second day of Pesach. There was a, They would cut barley and they would offer it as a flower offering. And that Omer kicked off the right of Jews to make use of their new grain. There's a prohibition in the Torah called Chadash. That prohibition is that when a Jew plants grain, anytime a Jew plants a grain, 
that produce is only permissible once the next year's Omer has been offered. So in places where you have, and this comes up, in places where you have, I think summer wheat is okay, because summer wheat is usually planted before Pesach. Once it's planted before Pesach, that's all that's required. It only has to be rooted in the ground before Pesach. The Omer offering, and in the absence of an offering, the halacha is that the day of the 16th is matir, permits chadash. So then by the time you harvest it, it's going to already no longer be chadash because it will have passed through the omer. But in places where you have winter wheat, that's more challenging because winter wheat is planted, let's say, in the fall, and then it's harvested in the winter or whenever it's harvested, and then it's supposed to theoretically be wait until the next Pesach. That's the omer issue that is linked in some way to Pesach. Now, in some sense, it's only linked to Pesach because it happens to happen on Pesach. I think, though, and I'm not the first to suggest, I think we look a little more carefully at some of the ideas of the Omer, including the very basic question of when was it that the Omer was offered? Now, we know in our practice it was offered the second day of Pesach, but I want to point out that that wasn't all clear in the time of the Mishnah and the Gemara. It was actually a topic of debate between the Prushim, between the Jews, as we think of Jews, between Chazal the rabbis, and um, and the Sadducees of their time. So the verse says in Vayikra Chav Gimel, right, chapter 23 of Vayikra, Hashem says to Moshe, Da'berel b'nei Yisrael, there's a Pasuk Yud, speak to the Jewish people and tell them, I'm not quoting the whole Pasuk, when you get to the land of Israel, uksartem et kitzira, you're going to start harvesting its harvest. V'habetem et omer kitzirchem el you bring the Omer, you bring a, an offering of the beginnings of your harvest to the, to the Kohen, and he's going to wave this offering. The Omer is a measurement of how much you'd have, but he's going to wave it, and then the verse says, Literally, that means, just reading the words plainly, it means the day after Shabbat, he'll wave it. And then it says, um, and then it says, and you can't eat any chadash. The next verse 14, Yudalit is, the lechem kaliva charmel, you can't eat any form of this flour or grain until ad etzem ayom until the point ad haviachem et korban until you bring this korban. So the Omer brought on me Shabbat. Now, in the context, it seems clearly to be after Pesach because this is in Parshat Emor, which is coming up soon, depending on where you are. In Israel, but it's coming up soon. In Parshat Emor, it's describing the holidays. So it says that it says the holiday of Pesach, what we call Pesach, and then it talks about harvest. So it's clearly related to Pesach in some way, especially since we know we're going to count 49 days from there as the next verses in the Torah tell us, and then have another holiday called Shavuot. So we know in the general area, but the specific date that the Torah said was Mimacharat HaShabbat. And that is an unclear term. And if you look at the Gemara in Masechet Menachot, you find out that not only was it unclear, it became this source of conflict. Now that conflict, I think, is important and valuable to think about because the Mishnah says, Ketzad HaEnosin, describes the whole procedure for the giving of the Omer. The messengers of the court would go out on Erev Yom Tov before Pesach started. Imagine, you know, how busy our Erev Pesach is. And there are times you also had a Korban Pesach. You also had a Pesach sacrifice. 
So let's assume that these people would have somebody else do that for them. So you have people who, well, everybody else is involved in the Korban Pesach. Everybody else is involved in making sure that their Pesach sacrifice is brought properly. These people delegate that because they're going out and they're finding where near Yerushalayim they can see some barley growing that's ready to be harvested and turned into flour for the flowering offering. And they would make it, um, while it's still connected to the ground, they would make it into groups. They would like bunch it together so that it would be easy to cut it. And then the Mishnah says that all the cities surrounding the area would come there. And the Mishnah itself says, It became a ceremony that Chazal wanted and insisted and were concerned with that it should have an Isek Gadol, a lot going on with it. So when the first day, this is what the Mishnah is telling us, when the first day of Pesach was ending, it was getting dark, the Kohen who's going to be cutting the grain, cutting the barley, says, and did the sun set? By which he probably means the stars come out. Is it is Yantif over? Omer Hain, and they all say yes. Then he says it again, and they say it again. And then he says, and should I use this scythe to cut the grain? And they say yes. He says, this one? And they says yes. He says, should I put it into this basket? And they say yes. And he says, but, but, right? And on Shabbos, he says, and should I do it even though it's Shabbat? Because the, right, even though it's Omer, and they would say yes. Ektsor, then he says, and I should cut. And they say, yes, cut. And the Mishnah says three times, he would say each of these things three times. And they say, yes, yes, yes. Now, Kolkach Lama, and why do they have such a thing about it? So notice in this Mishnah, we've said that it was made a big deal of it with that people would gather from all the local towns. It wasn't like, it wasn't like you just had to know that somebody on behalf of the Beit Din is cutting the Omer. You wanted to have a big group attending. So if you were nearby, you were supposed to go. And then he doesn't just do it. He checks it out. And he's not checking it out because he's uncertain of what he's doing. He's checking it out to make sure that everybody there is agreeing to something. And there's a big ASIC about it. We want to make sure. Why do we want such an involvement of it? Mishnah says, because now we always talk about the Sadducees, but the truth is in the time of the Mishnah, there were Stukim, and then there were Beitusim. And we don't know the difference between them so well because the Mishnah doesn't tell us exactly what their beliefs were. But both groups had differences of opinions with the Chachamim. So it's common to say that they didn't think there was such a thing as a Tarash of as an oral law. That's why we commonly say it. But there were differences among the groups. We're not sure what they were, I don't think. But in this case, they would say, Ksirata Omer is not the day after Yom Tov. They held, we're going to see it in the Gemara, but they held that Ksirat Omer is always Sunday. Because they said Makarat Shabbat means the day after Shabbat. Literally, Shabbat, like we always talk about it. Now the Gemara says, Tana Rabbanan, Ilain Yomaya Delohit They're quoting Megillat Tanit. Megillat Tanit was a record that they used to keep of days where some event occurred that to celebrate the event, you would not have fasting. Some of them you wouldn't have eulogies either because they were such a great uh, festival. So they give a whole example. So from the beginning of the month of Nisan until the eighth day. So that was when the Tamid 
the rule of the Talmud was established, they, they, they were victorious in the political debate about how to handle the regular daily sacrifice, the Tzdukim would say, Yachid mit The Tzdukim thought that even an individual can bring the communal Talmud, meaning if you have a rich, rich guy, right, he wants to be Parnas Hayom, as it were, he would say, okay, today it's so-and-so's dedication. The Tzdukim thought that was fine, as long as he donated it. Where and whereas the and they and they had a verse that told them that which we don't have to get into now, it's not our topic. But Kazal said and knew that they didn't want that to happen because it's a communal sacrifice. So if it's a communal sacrifice, it has to come from the communal coffers. Now, theoretically, he could donate a lot of money to the communal coffers, but it has to get all mixed in and just be communal monies. So the first eight days, uh, well, the first seven days of Nissan. They wouldn't have fasting or eulogizing because they were celebrating that victory that they established the principle that the tummy, the communal public sacrifices must come from communal coffers, from communal money. Then from the 8th of Nisan until the end of the holiday, okay, so then they succeeded in making sure that Shavuot was always seven weeks from the second day of Pesach and not seven weeks from the nearest Shabbos. Shayu Beitusim. I mean, the Beitusim would say, Atzeret Achara Shabbat, Atzeret Shavuos is always on a Sunday. Now, it wasn't on a random Sunday. It's the Beitusim thought that the way to read the Torah was that you'd have the first day of Pesach. Whenever the next Shabbat occurred, the day after that was when you brought the Omer, and then seven weeks later, you had Shavuot. That's what he, they claim. And so Gemara is saying, and when we finally won that one, we did it. So, but the victory, if you look at the Gemara, the victory wasn't so simple because Nitfalem, Rabbi Yochum and Zakai, Rabbi Yochum and Zakai decides to take up the argument with them. Ve'amarlem, and he says to them, I'm just reading the Gemara now, Shotim, Minayin Lachem. He says to them, "Such team is fools, crazy ones, stupid ones." But notice the, the 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 speech. It's not common for Yochum and Zakai to denigrate somebody else. He's doing it because there's a significant threat here, and the significant threat is to the the Jewish people's ability to keep the holidays at the right time. These Beitusim are threatening, are saying, we think that Chazal got it wrong and Shavuot should be a different day. That's a whole big deal. And imagine if they had succeeded in surviving. And imagine if and the Jewish people today, God forbid, there were, I don't know, 13, 15 million Jews who keep Shavuot when we do, and another 10 million who keep Shavuot some, you know, four or five days later, depending on what day of the week Pesach was. It would be a disaster. It would be terrible. There would be a problem of to go to do, of separation of the Jewish people. So he's being harsh with them. And so he asked them a question, and nobody would answer him until one guy, a zokin echad she'yamifat fate. And zokin echad who felt, in other words, the Gemara is commenting that this zokin, this elderly man, has no compunction and no sense of shame to stand up against Rav Yochan Menzaka, who's the Torah leader of the generation. And he says to him, Moshe Rabbeinu Ohev Yisrael haya. V'yodea she'atzeret yom echad. Amad v'tikna achar Shabbat. K'deshu Yisrael mit'angim shnei yamim. Which is remarkable because I think today people think that the two days... So I'm sorry, let me translate it. He says, his claim is, you know, I think it's got to be the day after Shabbos. And it's Moshe Rabbeinu doing us a favor. What's the favor? So when it comes to Pesach, 
you have a seven-day holiday. Now, it's true only the first and last day are holidays in the sense of not doing malacha, but it's seven days off. Because remember that Cholam Oed is a whole discussion, but it's clearly not meant to be just a regular day, right? The intermediate days of the holiday. And so too with Sukkot. You have a one day and then six days of of uh, of, of Cholam Oed, of intermediate days, which are holidays, just not with the full uh, prohibitions of malacha. And then you have Shmini Yatzeret. So it's an eight-day thing. So this Beitusi, this elderly Beitusi says, Moshe Rabbeinu felt bad that Shavuos is only one day, so he placed it always after Shabbat, as uh, as it is this year, as it happens. But he placed it always after Shabbat to give them two days in a row. Now, it's striking to me because we, I think today many people who have to keep two days in a row think, oh my gosh, two days, it's so hard. But partially, I think that's because we... In some ways, thank God, but in some ways, in a way that dulling ourselves to the value of the holidays, we always eat great. Thank God. But if you imagine people who ate barely, imagine if you had to eat, you know, during the week. If you had to eat all week, all you really got to eat was vegetables. Let's imagine. And not vegetables with a nice sauce or a nice dressing, but just sort of vegetables. And then all of a sudden, Shabbos, you got tasty food. That's really what the dietary uh, experience of Shabbat was and, holi- and holidays was. Imagine if the only time if you liked meat, the only time you had meat was a holiday. You had chicken on Shabbat, chicken and fish on Shabbat, let's say, and, and meat on a holiday. So the point of this Beit is that Moshe Rabbeinu is, is trying to help out the Jewish people in this way. So, So, Rav Yochanan Zakai says to him, Right, so um, that the that the Torah identifies the the land of Israel as being eleven days' journey from Seir, from where they had the giving of the Torah. So, and then on this now on some on some bet, he says that if Rosh Hashanah was such a lover of the Jewish people, why did he keep them in the desert for forty years? Now we know the answer. The answer is to the Jews' sin. But his point is, it's clearly not true that everything in the Torah is about helping the Jewish people. So that's not a proof of anything. And nor would Moshe Rabbeinu adjust the holidays for that, especially if Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't make the holidays. So So the Zakin says, that's not real logic. That's the way you're going to try to get rid of me? So he says to him, again, right? He says, don't make our Torah into like your stuff, like, oh, there's such a great idea, it's so nice. It's it's not dissimilar from people today, and I say this because it's an important point in this Gemara and in our discussion of the Omer and our discussion of Pesach. All of this, I think, is coming together. That's why I'm discussing this. I'm not just, I'm not only randomly uh, digressing. I think that this is making an important point. If you think about today, there are people who will explain why aspects of the Torah are valuable for us and do and help us in certain ways, which is an important thing. So let's say, for example, people say the laws of Shabbat are so wonderful because they bring families together. You can have family time and you you know disconnect from your devices and you disconnect from work and you spend time with the family. It's not that that's not true. It may be true, but it's not necessarily the essential element of it. The essential element of it is God told us to do so now. It could be true that in this case, that's why God told us to. But when people get used to explaining the Torah as a matter of what's beneficial to us, part of the danger there is that that people decide X thing 
is not beneficial to us, they can't imagine that the Torah would require it. So we will, in a few weeks from now, uh, get around talking about what the Torah thought of as the ideal Jewish polity. It's to be part of the reminder of where we're trying to get to, and I think it'll be valuable for that purpose, meaning if our goal is to see how we left Egypt and what were the pieces there that we're supposed to keep in place, so what kind of a nation we're supposed to set up, I think will be valuable. I will be making the claim down there that, it's not my claim, it's in the sources, that uh, that the Torah wants the Jewish people to have a monarch, a king. But many people today who admire democracy and admire some of the good things about democracy find that very difficult. But I think part of the issue is they've allowed themselves to think, if I come to understand what I'm certain is beneficial for people, so that's got to be what the Torah is going to say. I think you have some of that playing out here with the Beitusim, right? The Beitusim is saying to Yochum and Zakkai, of course Moshe Rabbeinu wanted Shavuos on a Sunday because it's better for the Jewish people and Moshe Rabbeinu wants it's better for us. And so when he says to him, Lo Torah when he says to him, don't turn our Torah, which is God's writing and God's word, don't turn it to your ordinary conversation. I think that's what he's saying. I think you've got to be careful about judging the Torah by our human standards. That's the first piece of his answer. Then he starts giving an answer. He says, There's a verse that says we count 50 days. Now, we don't count 50 days. We count to the 50th day. Another verse says it's going to be seven full weeks. So he says, you know, this is his first answer. He says, he says, I think what it's telling you is that sometimes it's going to be seven full weeks. That's when Pesach falls on a Shabbat. So then, in fact, Shavuot will be on a Sunday, like this year. That's when it's Sheva Shavuot But if Pesach falls on a Tuesday, let's say, so Shavuot is going to be a Wednesday. I don't even know if that's possible. Let's imagine that it is. Uh, Pesach falls on a Tuesday, so that Shavuot is going to be on a Wednesday. So then it's not going to be seven full weeks. So we start the week at Shabbat, right? So that we seven full weeks, it'll be just 50 days. That's Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai's way of saying that the Torah implies, now he's saying we have an oral law tradition about it, but the Torah implies that Shavuot could be lots of days, not just Sunday. That's one answer that's given, but it's not the only answer by far. Because later in the Gemara, Rabbi Eliezer says, I don't think you needed that verse to teach that lesson. He says, the verse says, Tispor lecha, He says, the counting of the Omer is a matter of, because the Torah says, you have to count for yourselves seven weeks. So that means yourselves, that we're doing the counting. But if Shavuot starts with always, a Shabbos, like the Shabbos, now the Shabbos is that we observe as Shabbat. In the Gemara, they call it Shabbat Breshit. It's called Shabbat Breshit because in the beginning of the Torah, it describes the creation and the seventh day was Shabbat. But what's important about that is that Shabbat has an independent character to it. By which I mean, Pesach comes on the 15th of Nisan, always, right? The night after the 14th. The 14th we offer the Korban Pesach, the 15th. But when does the 15th of Nisan happen? So in our days, we have a fixed calendar. So we sort of think it just happens whenever it happens. But by Torah law, the ideal was that it's not a fixed calendar. The ideal was that every month witnesses come and tell us when they saw the new moon. And then there's room in there, not our topic today, but there's room in there for the rabbis of the court, of the central court, to decide whether to accept the witnesses or not. But then also, every year, the rabbis make a decision 
about whether we need a second Adar as we had this year. So again, this currently we have it all on a fixed calendar. But that's not the ideal. That's why we always say the bracha Mekadesh Yisrael Vehazmani, that God sanctifies the Jewish people and the holidays. Why do we say it in that way? Because the Jewish people have a role in determining when the holidays are. But where the Beitu seem to be right, that Shavuot is always on a Sunday because it's seven weeks from a particular Shabbat, then it's fixed. It's not by us counting it. It just sort of happens, right? And what we want is, I'm sorry, the way the Gemara says it is, similar idea, the way the Gemara says it is that if it's always the Shabbat after Pesach, then anybody can do it. Whereas if it's linked to the first day of Pesach, so then it's a matter of the court doing it because they're the ones who know right away when the first day of Pesach is, whereas people all over the world don't necessarily know that. So meaning, probably this is a better way to say it and that I should have said it this way to begin with, right? You know, once I know when Adar is, let's say, and that people will know, even if I'm living far away from Jerusalem, I know one of two possible days that Pesach is going to be that year, which means that I really already know when the Shabbos after that will be. So according to Beit Tzim, I would already know when Shavuos is going to be. But when the Torah says, the Torah says, should be that the Beit has a better role in it. And that That's only true if it starts with the very beginning of Pesach. That was his idea. Rabbi Yeshua says, I have another idea. The Torah says, the Torah said count 50 days. Now, in other contexts, it tells count 30 days or 29 days and, and uh, make a new month. Here it's telling us to count days to make a holiday. Just like with a new month, we make the new month right as soon as it's clear that it's a new month. So too with Shavuot, as soon as it's available to come. That would mean as soon as Pesach starts, that would be on the road. That would be Yeshua's idea. Rabbi Yeshua has another idea. And I don't need to go through all of them because A, we're running out of time and B, it's not necessary for my point. And Rabbi Yehuda has another, Rabbi Yehuda has another idea. And Rabbi Yehuda has another idea. And then you turn to Menachos Samech Vavana, so it's taking us a whole daf of Gemara. Rabbi Shimon Alazar has another idea, right? That six days you eat matzos, and seventh day you eat, uh, um, yeah, that, 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 that he says that it says six days you eat matzos, and another puzzle says on seven days you eat matzos. We learn from that in another context that there's only absolutely an obligation to eat matzah on the first day of Pesach. But Rabbi Shem ben suggested what it means is that there's some matzah. I could have eaten all seven days of Pesach. That's matzah made from the old grain. But there's other matzah I could eat six days of Pesach because that's matzah made from the new grain. Because on the second day of Pesach, we already start permitting the new grain. I can make it. That's his proof that the offering the Omer was on the second day of Pesach. Right? And then Rava says, at the end of all this, he says, you know, there's a weakness in any one of these limudim other than the two last ones and this and this and this, right? So so you end up having one of these things, not the only place in the Gemara, you have it a bunch of places in the Gemara, a few places where we know an idea and we have a style of tradition, there's an idea, but we don't quite have the verse to prove the idea yet. And we watch Chazal struggle over generations to identify the exact verse that will teach this idea. So it tells to me and this is an example. This is what I, I once suggested this many, many years ago. I was giving a shear. I was trying out for a job, actually, which I didn't get. And I was giving a shear, and I gave a whole shear. I read through the whole Gemara like we've done today. I read for, I think, slower and more detailed. And I said, I think it's pointing out that Shavuot is a holiday that's deeply dependent on the oral law, on the Torah Shabbat Because without the Torah Shabbat reading of the verses, 
and the tradition of it, we wouldn't know when Shavuos was because the Beitusim, who didn't accept that tradition, they come up with a whole different idea. And I said that it makes sense that Shavuot, the holiday that we connect to the receiving of the Torah, as we'll talk about next time, God willing, but the Shavuot, the holiday that we connect to giving the Torah, should be a holiday whose very date is dependent on the oral law. And I thought I was making this really interesting point. I was very excited, very happy with it. And some guy in the, in the audience, I remember who it was, but some guy in the audience says, yeah, the Rav said that. Remember, Salavechik said that years ago, which if I had known, I would have said, I want to share with you an idea that Rabbi Salavechik had. But to me, it was a little deflating because it said, okay, you thought you had a good idea, but I think it's a good idea anyway. It's an important idea too, because it means that right at the beginning of Yitzhak time of the Exodus, God embeds in our lives the reminder that when we leave Egypt, that leaving is embedded in a web of written laws as well as in a in, in a, as well as in a sense of the oral law and the oral tradition about what we do and don't do and the ability to accept that has been one of the challenges throughout jewish history we saw the beitusim today there's the stukim like that later on jewish you have the karaites today in our times we have conservative jews reformed jews who each in their own way don't fully accept you had the Shabtai Tzvi people, the Sabatians at some point in Jewish history. You had in the first Beit HaMikdash, you had Yeravam went up to the north and they left Judaism. So one of the challenges already starting from Yitzhak Mitzrayim has been this ability to be willing to accept the oral law and the, and the full tradition. So as we go from the heights of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the heights of Pesach and the reminder of when we left Egypt, I think one of the things that I wanted to point out is this is this requirement to remember and to keep with us the knowledge and the awareness of the Torah Shabbat Peh. And that one of the weaknesses, sadly, in Jewish history has been the ability of the broad group of the Jewish people to absorb and adhere not just to the Torah itself, but the Torah in its fullest meaning, in the meaning of the oral tradition reveals to us. And that became a point of uh, resistance and rebellion by many people. Just very briefly in that light, I would point out that we at the Seder use as one of the backbones of our telling of the Seder story, the words of Arami Oveid Avi. Those words of Arami Oveid Avi are actually words the Torah itself tells us that we should tell when we're bringing Bikurim, which is not the Omer, but it's very similar to the Omer. It's a different example of first fruits. When we bought our first produce to Jerusalem to celebrate with Hashem, we would retell the, the state, we retell the Exodus story in the way that God prescribed for us to tell it. And it's again this idea of linking our agricultural lives to our historical national lives. So here we have that with the Omer and Pesach as well. We leave Egypt and we're having a celebration of leaving Egypt. That's the holiday of Pesach embedded in there, right in there. The day after we remember that we left Egypt, Hashem says, okay, and now imply, apply those lessons into your agricultural, your ordinary lives. And in doing so, Hashem says to link them to each other and to remember that it's the oral law that guides these things. So step one in our journey to see where A, we may have gone wrong as a nation or our forefathers, which means we did it too, went wrong as a nation. We have the question of the oral law and the question of remembering to place our historical experience of the exit from Egypt into our everyday lives as uh, symbolized by the farmers of the time of the Chumash, of remembering when we bring Bikurim, but remembering even more than that, the very day after we celebrate the Exodus, we take our new grains and we start turning it towards Hashem in the way that the oral law told us. So that's the first step of our 14-step journey to finding our way, God willing, back to Gula. 
And that's our first podcast. My name is Gideon Rothstein. I will be sharing these ideas with you for the next 13 weeks. Thank you for joining me. And if you want to email me, my email is grothst at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and hear your feedback on what we're talking about here. Um, Have a great day.